Will there be peace or war? Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. We are joined by Korean War Marine veteran Bob Harpula. But there was worse to come. A highly trained and well-equipped North Korean army swarmed across the 38th parallel to attack unprepared South Korean defenders. Caught off guard, they were all but overwhelmed until the United Nations took its historic vote to intervene. While the Korean Republicans fought a desperate delaying action, a United Nations police force with General Douglas MacArthur as Commander-in-Chief was formed. seemed in sight as the Allies pushed north toward the North Korean capital of Pyongyang and further northward to the Manchurian and Siberian borders. Then it happened. The Chinese Red Armies, numbering hundreds of thousands, swarmed over the frontier against thinly held United Nations positions. Confronted by overwhelming numbers, UN armies were forced into inevitable retreat, while men wondered whether Red China would touch off World War III. UN troops paid heavily in casualties. Facing a foe that often outnumbered them 10 to 1, the Allies gave ground slowly, marching through temperatures that sometimes reached 20 below zero. 20,000 trapped near the Chosin Reservoir slogged and fought their way 60 bitter miles to the evacuation port of Hungnam. Through snow-clad mountains and icy passes, they held off 200,000. To this day, it is known as the Forgotten War, but for many Korean War veterans, the notion of forgetting is inconceivable, as a small group of surviving members have carried memories of horror and heroism from one of the war's most brutal conflicts that is simply known as the Battle of Chosen Reservoir. A total of 17 Medals of Honor, 70 Navy Crosses, plus many Distinguished Service Crosses were awarded for the campaign, the most for a single battle in U.S. military history. Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dick. Korean War veteran, uh, you were, were, were you an 0311 Marine? Yes. You were 17 when you joined the Marine Corps. Right. What made you decide to join the Marines at 17? Well, sitting in high school, looking out the window, thinking of what I'm going to do when I graduate. And uh, I said, I sure don't want to go into the mills where my parents and relatives all worked. So uh, my brother had been in the Marines, and he was a sergeant. He'd come home like on a Thursday and wouldn't go back until the following Tuesday every other week. And he had a new car, and he had money in his pocket, and he had a lot of girlfriends. <laughs> now, what's a young 17-year-old What else could you possibly want, want yeah. right? <laughs> what, what else is there? <laughs> well, it didn't work out that way for me. <laughs> so I joined up and went to the Marines. What year did, was this you joined? 48. When World War II ended, you were 14, 15 years old, roughly? Yeah. So you remembered all of that very well. And so you knew about Iwo Jima and the Philippines and all that, all the Marine history there. Yeah, my first hero was Mitchell Page, Sergeant Mitchell Page from Guadalcanal. Mm -hmm. He's from West Mifflin. They had a special parade for him when he came home. And I remember sitting on the back of the uh, Ford convertible waving at us. And I looked at him and I read about what he did. I said, man, that's awesome. So is that, is that part of the motivation for Pick the Marines? Right. That, and then seeing my brother come home every other weekend, well, it turned out that he was a chief messman. Now, I didn't know what a chief messman was, you know, and I figured that's Marine Corps talk. Right. But they, are, they have different assignments than the grunt Marines. Sure. They take care of feeding these Marines. So they have special hours that they work, and they're on call 24 hours a day. They sleep right at the mess hall. You had no idea. You thought, hey, that's a pretty good gig. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go do that for a while. I too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you joined. This was so in 48. The Korean War had not begun, begun right, yet. June 48. So you were joining in peacetime, basically. Right. And they sent me up to 8th and I in D.C. And I didn't know what 8th and I in D.C. was. So it turned out to be a post, the oldest post in the Marine Corps. And that's where they had the silent drill team. 
I got involved in that. And I was there two years. We guarded the president when he went to Camp David, or Shangri-La, it was called then. And uh, any special duties that he, he would be performing or going somewhere where they needed Marines, we would be the ones that they would pick. Was this Truman at the time? Yeah. Did you ever get to meet him? Oh, yeah. What was he like? Uh, he was down to earth. He asked me where I was from. This was at Shangri-La. I was on guard up, up at the top of the hill. He stopped and talked to me. And on one side of the hill was the pool, and it's all fenced in. And then the other side is where the living quarters are and where the president meets other people, dignitaries and so on. And he'd stop and talk to me. And he talked to other Marines besides whoever was on guard when he's taking his stroll. Well, he liked service members because he was he yeah, was an artillery officer in World War One, and he really liked his experience. So he he went out of his way to kind of engage you guys. Yeah, well, he put up with us. <laughs> <laughs> He's army. Remember that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, Margaret, his daughter, was the one we liked. Oh yeah, <laughs> because she would uh, they would go down and use the pool in the morning, and whoever's uh, on guard up at the on the peak of the hill. She'd have to pass them to go to her quarters, and she'd say, you could tell the Marines they could have the pool. <laughs> and we loved her. <laughs> so that's a pretty good way to spend two years. So you were, you were like 18, 18, 19 years old. You were just a kid, and your job was to guard the president. <laughs> right. So that went on for two years. We would, like we would go up two days ahead of the uh, motorcade, and we would check all the bridges for booby traps or anything, anybody fooling around up there. And we'd, we'd camouflage ourselves in the woods and let the motorcade pass by, and they'd go up, then we'd go up. And you enjoyed that assignment? Oh, yeah. It was Good two different. years? It was, you know, it was in downtown D.C., and it had a lot of advantages. And, uh, you had a lot of girlfriends? <laughs> well, yeah, they had a lot of women working in D.C. <laughs> they used to call up or the uh, sergeant, of the guard at the guardhouse and say, well, uh, we need 10 Marines for a party at the YWCA or wherever it might be. And so we'd sign up, the men would sign up, whoever's name went on first, that's who went. You guys were climbing over each other to get to that sign up list. <laughs> well, we'd always check it, <laughs> but it was nice. You know, everything was taken care of. We didn't, but they liked the Marines because we were controlled. Sure. And they knew that the Marines were easy, easy to get on, but they were, they were disciplined, and so they, more than those Army clowns, right? <laughs> you never knew about the Army. <laughs> so, did you pick up any rank in those two years? No, 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 no. You had to put in time. That was that was another story. The rank business. Two years of that, and then how did you get from there to Korea? John Wayne just made the movie Sands of Iwo Jima, and they were having the premiere showing at the Warner Theater in downtown D.C. And uh, the Marines at 8th and I were picked to go down and usher in the congressmen and their families to their seats and so on. So I was there two days, and it showed uh, two times each day. And after the after my tour down there of Sanzi Iwo Jima, seeing it that many times, I said to my buddy, I said, you know, I need a war. Well, little did I know, better watch out what you ask for. So at this point, you're 19, full of piss and vinegar, obviously. Yeah, I wanted to see some action. I was tired of, you know, twirling a rifle and spinning that thing around and marching. And we were, we were very good at what we did, but that's all we basically did in guard the president. So you volunteered to go to Korea? Yeah, so that, uh, they put up a list on the uh, bulletin board at the, in the, our barracks. And they asked for 10 volunteers. This is when the Korean War first started. And they were going to form a, like a raider battalion in Pendleton. And so they said, um, we, we need 10, 10 volunteers from 8th and I. So I was one of the first to sign up. And we got 10 days special leave to take our stuff home. And they would fly from Pittsburgh out to uh, San Diego. And that wouldn't be counted against us. This was a special leave. Sure. So when I get there with this other fella from Pittsburgh, so we're walking up through the Quonset huts, and here what had happened was the war got so bad, and they were pushed down to the Poussin perimeter. Uh, MacArthur wanted a division of Marines now. 
you know, in just a, a battalion. And so they're trying to get put together a, a division. So they drained everything out of all everywhere. The, all the embassies were drained of Marines, all the guard duty stations, everybody to make up a division because we didn't have a division. I think we had a, a regiment with two battalions at Pendleton and a regiment with two battalions at Camp Lejeune. So had you not volunteered, you probably still would have ended up going. Oh, yeah, I would have went, but I wouldn't have had that 10-day, and I wouldn't have flowed, flowed on the, the airplane out there. I would have been on that uh, cattle train. So that's why you say it's one of the smartest moves you ever made. Okay, that makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, that was the smartest thing I did. So how long did you train up at Pendleton before you shipped over? We basically didn't train. I got thrown into a machine gun squad. I never saw a machine gun the two years I was in the Marine Corps. But they they needed bodies, and we had a first sergeant Zulo, and you didn't argue with him. I mean, when he said it, that was it, even the officers didn't argue with him. But uh, basically, what we did at Pendleton was get all our shots that we're going to need to go overseas, and then clean off the weapons from World War II that were packed away in Cosmoline, and go out to. Uh, 29 palms and get get more equipment in and it's all covered with cosmoline and he says you'll learn about the machine gun on on the ship going over so don't worry about that was this a 50 caliber 30 30 caliber light 30 and for people that may not know cosmoline it is not fun to clean it (laughs) off a weapon of any sort particularly one that's been sitting for what seven eight years now right so you, you learned on the on the ship on the way over well, supposedly, but the first six, seven days out, we were all, most of us were seasick, thrown up over the side, so we didn't learn nothing. How long is that? was that boat ride? 13 days. 13, whew, that sounds terrible. Yeah. So we went to Japan, and to, uh, we got off there, and they uh, took us to Camp Otsu. This was a Japanese Marines training camp and uh, in World War II. And so we just ran up and down the hill, full packs, that's all we did was get in shape to make this inch-on landing. We didn't even know what we were going to do yet, but it turned out to be making the inch-on landing. And out of this division, like your first sergeant, some of the older guys, were they World War II vets? Some of them. So you had a couple of like experienced combat guys, but mostly you were mostly cherry we were, privates. Yeah, we were 18, 19-year-old PFCs. So you had no idea what you were getting into. No. So they said, we're going to make this landing. We're going to go on LSTs from Japan to make the landing get inch on Korea. That's up the Yellow Sea. So when we get on the LST, we see stacks of two-by-fours. We said, what are we going to do, build houses? I said, what's all this stuff for? And it turns out we were going to build ladders. And we said, well, ladders for what? You know, we never saw Marines building ladders in World War II. Right. Uh, they always landed on a nice sandy beach and charged up that beach. Well, we were building ladders to climb up a seawall, and none of us, nobody had ever done that before. Attack a seawall, and you had to climb up. And you're going in there, the way Inchon's harbor is, the tide was so drastic that when the tide went out, the boats would just sit on the mud, the mud flats. Anything out there would just be... You wouldn't move. It was just sitting there till the next tide came in and lifted it up. So you had to take in all the ammunition that you're going to need and food for like two days because you're not going to be counting on resupply real prompt. So we're loaded down with like 100 pounds on our packs, two cans of ammunition on our packs, two cans in our, in our hands, our uh, M, uh, you know, the carbine, and our own food and clothing and tent and all that stuff. So we, we had over 100 pounds of stuff, and we're going to climb up these ladders that OSHA didn't approve. <laughs> <laughs> and we nailed them together, and I'm sure some of them broke. They didn't take and They weren't able to So you're handle. climbing these ladders, and you can't even use your hands because you got ammo cans. Well, we, we tied a um, cartridge from the uh, machine gun belt and tied the two handles together and strung them around our neck. Mm. And we had the other two on a special pack in, in our back. And we were able to use our hands. And So when you landed, were you under fire when you were climbing the seawall? Yeah. The first guy I ever seen get got killed uh, was 
getting up the ladder, uh, a guy by the name of Corporal Barnes, he took, he was cutting a wire, the ball wire, and he took a ricochet off a post and through his neck. And I watched him die because we couldn't move. That there was a fire was still coming to Corman. We're working on him, and uh, it wasn't pleasant watching him die. And that was day one. That was the first day. First, first bit of combat. So everything's very real to you at this point. Yeah. It's not. It's things, not like the movies anymore. Right. Things are changing rapidly. So once you got up, cleared the seawall, you, you had to fight your way inland, or was yeah, it pretty we, stiff we resistance? In, we went in and formed platoon circles. And anybody moving is going to get shot outside that circle. So sure. you don't move. And uh, your dog tired. I'd carry um, a little bag of rocks and I'd throw them at guys' helmets in the foxholes to make sure they were up. Because I ain't going crawling around out there. Right. <laughs> but it, it was only t- natural tendency for the, the men to fall asleep. Sure. It was from carrying all that weight and moving and taking his heel and then forming a circle. Fortunately, we didn't get hit hard. You know, the, the enemy didn't counterattack at night. And then we were ready for him the next day. Then it was all our, it was our show. We had our tanks in and we we're going towards Seoul. So we had no, none of us ever had a training on an amphibious tractor. Some of the Second World War Marines did they had some training, but all the guys, the PFCs, they never had any, any training at all. And nothing, no, none of us had any training to go up that seawall. She just kind of followed the older guy's lead? Right, and that's what I decided to do. Watch what your sergeant did. Listen to Zulo. Zulo was the kind of guy, he wouldn't tell you to go take a position, take a machine gun out or attack a hill. He'd say, come on, let's take this. He'd be out there in front. So... We were fearful of him because we'd rather face the Chinese or the, the North Koreans than face him. But, but he uh, gave you confidence leading the way. Yeah, we knew we were in It's a great leader. Hands. Yeah. He, he made the George Company what it was, what it turned out to be. Did he make it through the whole tour? No, no. We'll get to him in a little while when we get up to Chosen. But uh, next stop is Seoul. And... Here we didn't. We never had any house-to-house training, fighting, and we're going up the streets. We're, we're leading the attack in Seoul. We're one squad on each side. The machine gun squad follows the rifle squad, and uh, we're seeing banners up, "Welcome Truman's Police Force," American flags, and we're saying, "What the hell is this? Did the army beat us here?" <laughs> and then we come to a trestle. And they had machine guns up in the trestle, and they opened fire on us going up, and they cut down like the first five or six guys on each side of the street. And then we were in the battle of Seoul. So we fight our way through up to the main part of Seoul and take our positions for the night, and they counterattack, the North Koreans counterattack with tanks, uh, regiment, and there's like, 180 George Company Marines plus some heavy machine guns. And we stopped that attack. So that we got cut up pretty bad then. That was one of the first times out of five that we took on an enemy regiment. George Company took the brunt of an attack by an enemy regiment. And we stood tall after each of those battles. And that was the first one. So after we took Seoul, MacArthur makes his first stupid mistake. We were sent in to cut off the, the North Koreans from escaping up from uh, the Pusan perimeter, and we were in perfect position. But the, too many were going up the East Coast. Too many were going up that way. So he says, I'm going to take the Marines out and send them by ship around up to Wonsan, on the east side of the uh, peninsula, and that way we'll stop it. Well, by that time, by the time we get on board, reboard ship and get around, uh, they could be long gone, but this is stupid. We could have just moved straight across and cut them off. But for some reason, he wanted us to make another amphibious landing, and we were going up to uh, make the landing at Wonson, and they forgot to check the harbor. There was thousands of mines in the harbor. 
So we got involved in Operation Yo-Yo. In the morning, we'd be heading north in the Sea of Japan, and in the evening, we'd be heading south. We did that for 10 days. We're wasted out there, and they don't have food on this Japanese LST. <laughs> so we come in, and uh, it turned out that uh, Bob Hope had had a show at, at, uh, up at Wonson before we made the landing. So he even beat us in. So we, we took that, and then we got assigned to go into, uh, take a um, crossroad town by the name of Meijini, North Korea, which is outside of Wonson. And a lot of the North Koreans were escaping through on this highway. That, well, it wasn't a highway. They're all dirt, dirt roads. And we went to seal that off. And so we took about 1,500 prisoners in a short time. And we didn't have facilities for them in our battalion uh, area. We didn't have enough people to watch them. And so we had to get them out of there. And also, it was starting to get cold. This was uh, end of October, 1st of November. So they assigned the second platoon of George Company to take these prisoners back to the uh, regiment, and they had a compound there to handle prisoners of war. And we were hoping they'd start something on the way down, but they didn't. They were very docile, and they were hungry and scared. And, but uh, we saw what they did to the people in Seoul, the army. They tied soldiers' hands behind their back, and women and children and old men were massacred in the we found them in the um, trenches outside of Seoul when we made some patrols and we made up our minds that no quarter will be given to sure. the North Koreans certainly had no sympathy for them no we were hoping they would act up give on you them. a reason to kill them yeah because we Fair had enough. no love for the North Koreans right from then on anyhow we, there was no incidents on the way down to to regiment, but on the way back, they have an ambush set on top of one of these mountains, near near the top of one of the mountains. I was on the third truck sitting on the tailgate with two other uh, machine gun platoon members. And uh, these, I call we called them gooks, the North Koreans. Two of them step out from behind a big boulder as the road made a turn to the left uh, near the top. And he opened fire, and he shot at us on the tailgate. And so the other two guys that were with me, they, they got hit, and they were falling, and I just fell with them in unison with, with them. But I wasn't hit, and I kept rolling to the edge of the berm, and then it dropped down into the valley. That was my first close-up combat. The three trucks went up around the bend, and there was, they had a roadblock there. And uh, they stopped them, and I said, well, what the hell am I going to do? I took some shots at some the enemy, the North Koreans, that I saw down in the field. But I said, I can't stay here. And so the easiest thing for me to do would have been going over to the left where they, uh, the Marines behind us had set up a skirmish line and was returning fire on the ambush. And I said, no, I'd become friends with Sergeant Hurt. He was our squad leader. And he and I were pretty close. We got fr very friendly. And so I said, I, I got to check on him. I got to see if I can help him. I don't know what happened to them. Those three trucks running around. So I crawled up and I saw the three trucks stop behind these boulders. And there was a lot of Marine bodies laying around. I noticed that there was a head in the second cab of the second truck and it moved. I said, well, that's where Hurt was. He was in the second truck in the cab. And so I worked my way using the trucks as uh, to, to mask my moves. And I saw that he was his shoulder was shattered. He was laying on the front seat, and the driver was just shaking. He was he was in pretty bad shape from well, obviously he's scared. And he said every time they, they move, they fire the North Koreans shoot at him. And I saw about four or five North Koreans standing up ahead, oh, probably about. 50 yards away. And I looked around and I said, well, we can't move his truck. I, he, we can't take Hurt out. I could have got them out the way I came. I said, but he's hurt too bad. And there was another guy in the third truck that was hurt. And uh, 
I went back and told them what uh, what we're going to do is. Uh, and as I was going up there, I saw the machine our machine gun sitting on some boxes of uh, cold weather gear. We were taken back for the winter winter campaign, and I said, "Look, I'll go up there, pick up that machine gun, and get and I'll fire at those guys." And you, when I start firing, you turn this truck around. So I told the second, the third truck what we're going to do and try to coordinate our movement. So, and it was a very narrow road. You could have went over the cliff if, if you didn't watch yourself. So I went up and I opened fire and took out three or four of them on the first shot. And um, they were surprised. They, didn't, they never expected. So we got the trucks moved around. And as we came out, and we're, I thought they would stop, but they rested the trucks. But the trucks had pulled over to the, close to the hillside, so they could climb out of the trucks right onto the uh, hill. And all the trucks were pulled over, so they they bypassed them. Barely enough room to get by, but here comes these two trucks rolling down the, down this mountain road. And they never stopped. And as we got near the bottom, somebody threw a grenade or a satchel charge and knocked uh, our truck that I was in off the road, and it started going down into a ravine, and a creek was down there. And I jumped clear, I was on the back, and I jumped clear of the truck as it left the road, and the truck went down, and the guys that were still left in there were all hurt, uh, unconscious, so. But I went down, made sure they, they weren't in trouble with any water or any enemy around, and the first truck saw this through his rearview mirror, and he came back for me. And uh, we went into headquarters and told uh, Chesty, Colonel Chesty Puller what had happened, that we were in an ambush. And Colonel Puller told his first sergeant to get all, the, all his men together, mostly clerks and stuff like that. So Chesty Puller, who is a legend, an absolute Marine Corps legend, you guys knew that already, right? He was our commander. Was it, He was the regimental, regimental commander? commander? What's it like just being around a guy like that that's just a stone-cold hero. Does it motivate you? Yeah, you, you know that you're in good hands. With a guy like that leading, you know, in charge of you, you know, he's not going to do too many stupid things. We always were fearful. But one thing about the Marines, they had some of the best officers. I mean, these guys were no-nonsense people. They were fair-minded, and they were brave. They're cut out of a separate mold. I mean, they... And they depend on their first sergeants and their sergeants. They, but as you know, as you go through these battles, you lose a, a lot of the officers and you lose a lot of your sergeants because they move up to take over the officers' roles. And then you, you don't have anybody with PFCs left. And so I was a PFC and I was a squad leader after this ambush. And it gave me nine replacements and uh, some of them hadn't even been to boot camp. And they had no training. They, they belonged to some special reserve outfit. I thought it was kind of, afterwards, I thought it was kind of criminal sending these men to combat without proper training in that. So I had like about a week to get these guys whipped together into some form before we went into the Battle of Chosen. And they were going to need it, need every bit of training they could get. These guys didn't even know how to put Kentucky windage on their rifles. That's how bad it was. So you had to start from scratch, basically, these guys. Yeah. But they were Marines. I can't emphasize this too much. But if a man becomes a Marine, it's instilled in you to be good at what you do. And they tried, and they listened. They take orders good. There's never, uh, uh, when you give an order in a Marine Corps, it's never questioned or debated. You do it. And the sergeant gives you an order, PFC, I was in charge, and they were told he's in charge, even if you're a corporal. Under him, you'll listen to the uh, to the PFC. He's in charge of the machine gun squad. And that's what Sitter wanted, Captain Sitter, who won the Medal of Honor at Chosen. He told the men, he, he wanted his combat veterans on the machine guns and on the tubes, the mortars, no matter what their rank is. He wanted the combat veterans handling it, and everybody else will listen to them. But we didn't have that many corporals were under us. Most of them were just PFCs like us. So let's talk about Chosen. So we're on our way to Chosen. And uh, for some reason, well, not for a good reason, uh, we didn't have enough trucks to get everybody there. When the Army moves in Korea, 
they had trucks for everybody. A Marine division has like, I think, 600 trucks as opposed to 1,200 for an Army division. That's the difference because we're not a land army. Right. We're an amphibious force and we go in, hit hard, and we don't go too far. And we never lead the, the fire of the naval gunfire. And the Missouri Big Mo could shoot like uh, 25, 30 miles, and that's it. That's all the farther we're supposed to go because that's our heavy artillery. Right. Well, it didn't work out that way in Korea. They made us into a land army and put us under an army general. And that will never happen again. Do you remember who that general was? General Allman. He was in command of an army division, a black army division in Italy in the Italian campaign, World War II. And a German battalion routed the, the division. And he blamed it on his troops. Not him. It's not his fault. Right. And he's supposed to be one of the biggest races we ever had in the military. Anyhow, I read that somewhere. That uh, he was very, he, he, he didn't like the blacks. He was from Virginia or something, not like that way. But he, he's telling our general who fought in World War II, he made many landings. He was on Okinawa, General O.P. Smith. He's telling him how to fight a war. Right. And this guy never led nothing. He was just, he was just uh, a brown noser for MacArthur. And MacArthur made him chief of staff, and then he gave him a corps. And that was, that was the worst thing that he could have done. So you have somebody that doesn't know how to lead or how to fight. And I blame, I blame him for the 2,200 GIs that got killed, the Chosen, the Army, they got killed up there. And I blame Almond for that. Sure. Because the guys fought well, they just had piss-poor leadership. I mean, the Chosen was a meat grinder. It was as horrific combat as you'd ever see. Right. And uh, Chosen, a Marine regiment has about 4,500 men. And our 5th Marine regiment was on the east side of the reservoir when it first started, when we first went up there. And then we pulled them back around and joined our 7th regiment going on the left side of the reservoir. And the Army... But a uh, regiment came up, which which had uh, two battalions and an uh, artillery battalion plus tanks in it. And they tried to fill in 4,500 foxholes with 3,200 men. And you can't do that. And they were told, there's enemy up here. They're being told, the Army is being told by General Allman, that don't let a bunch of uh, Chinese laundrymen stop you from getting up to the Yalu River. You get, you get up there. You know, he's using his pressure and not using good tactical sense because we're reporting capturing Chinese over and over again. And uh, they're telling us, and the people are telling us, the North Korean people hated the Chinese. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. Because the Chinese came in, they had to live off the land. And the land was held by these itinerant farmers and their families. And it's, it's slave and work hard all summer and store stuff in their, you know, in their sheds for winter so they could survive. Well, the army, Chinese army came in, kicked them out of the houses, took all their food, and said, get out of here. Same way the Germans did in World War II. Come in and rape, pillage, take everything that's valuable. But this is, their, this is right. North Korean people. You yeah. know? This is North Koreans. And uh, they're treating their people, uh, the North Korean people, like I said. They had no love for the Chinese. Right. And they would tell us. And they loved us because we'd give the kids candy. They never had candy. And you know what candy was. So we're giving them candy and things like that, and cans of stuff we don't like in the sea rations. And so we got along good with them. You know, they never caused us any problem. Well, anyhow, the Army did, did their thing, and it got wiped out. Uh, I think uh, they out of that 3,200 men, there was 300 that were able to fight that we were able to use at Hagaroo. And because uh, you guys had no idea the strength of the Chinese, right? We had no idea. And what what got me about the battle chosen is that we were sent out on on this limb, like there was no support. The closest Allied force for the Marines was eighty miles through the Taybek Mountains on our left flank. That was the Eighth Army. On our right flank, they were a hundred miles away. Was the Seventh Division, and we're out there in the middle of this plateau up on this plateau, and uh, 
we get surrounded, it's easy to surround us because, you know, we can't cover all that territory, we, you know, especially in the winter. And then the Army gets hit on the 25th of November, 1950. They hit the 8th Army on the west side of the Korea. And they were supposed to hit us, too, on the 25th. But they, because of the mountains, they couldn't get in position. They didn't get into position to do hit us until the 17th. And we're up there, and they're getting hit. The 8th Army is in route retreat, what is known as the Big Bug Out. Mm-hmm. In uh, Korea, the Army ran for, for 120 miles. They retreated, biggest retreat in military history. And they left us up there, and we're getting surrounded. And they don't even tell us. Almond didn't even tell us to cut off the attack. You're not going up to the alley. Solidify your positions. And this is, what, uh, this is why I blame him for what they did to the uh, Army on the east side of the reservoir. Oh, and the biggest thing that the, the Army did, MacArthur, was he had them pick up his South Korean kids, out of, not even out of high school, on the streets, wherever they could find them, and put them in the Army. And they put like a third of a battalion would be these kids, these South Korean kids. Knew nothing about combat, put a, a U.S. uniform on them. Well, they, they, it became known that they, they, couldn't, they wouldn't stand and fight. They would run. I mean, if you're not if you're, you're you're not a warrior, you're not primed for combat. You're the first thing you see all these Chinese coming at you. You're going to run. Now, the army is up there. Our Eighth Army. Now, they, MacArthur let their training go while they were in Japan. You know, in that soft duty. But they don't know that these are South Koreans running. They look like us, like an army soldier. So you see. 800 guys moving back, and then it became known as the big bug out, and everybody started bugging out on each other. So this is what happens when you have a third of your army that uh, don't speak English, don't understand English. How do you fight a war? How do you tell them what to do? How do you give orders, yeah. Yeah, uh, what do you teach them? So you guys are left alone. Well, this is what the army was. This is why the army— I. I said, that can't be the same army that beat the Germans. I don't believe this. There's something's wrong. So I did a lot of research, and I found out that they, all the army, and because of Mark MacArthur doing that, he put these kids in there, and they're not soldiers. And so they ran. And so we're stuck up there. And we, we weren't even told, or the, they didn't even tell their army, you know, the armies uh, that was up there, didn't even tell them that they're under attack to solidify Take key positions, you know, you know, pull yourself in. And like the Marines, the Marines had always had tight perimeters. No matter, we had, uh, this was the brilliance of the General Smith, the, the general of the 1st Marine Division. His brilliance was that he recognized something wrong. And he let all these enclaves that were left, like Coterie, Hagaru, Udamni, and um, Tocton Pass, he set them up with perimeters that they were tight, had firepower in them, and could do some, you know, you'd have to hit them pretty hard to destroy them. And the Chinese found that the Marines didn't run like the Army did. We didn't have the same problems as the Army. We had the camaraderie, and Marines just don't run. Right. They hold their positions, and so they, they tried it over and over, and we slaughtered them. They hit us with 150,000 men against 15,000 Marines. Now, any other battle, if you have those kind of odds, you're going to lose. There's no way you're coming out. And their job was to—the Chinese were told to annihilate the Marines like you would snakes in your home. This is their words. And uh, they even broadcast over to Peiping Radio on, I think it was the 2nd or 3rd of December— that the annihilation of the Marine Corps was only a matter of time. And this would give the Chinese status in the world. If they can wipe out a Marine division that nobody's ever done before, if they can wipe out a Marine division, they would gain a lot of status in countries around the world. And so that's why they sent that many men. They couldn't afford to lose. Well, out of their 150,000 uh, a Chinese general says we had 35,000 effectives left after the battle chosen. 
And that not only saved the Marine Corps because they wanted to get rid of us. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. At that time, right before that, they were talking about disbanding the Marine Corps because they said they didn't need a Marine Corps. Appropriations were tight enough. And we did everything at uh, Normandy. We made landings. We know how to make landings. And we could get rid of the Marine Corps. And Truman agreed with them. So it was only a matter of time until the battle chosen. And whenever we saved, you know, we not only defeated the Chinese, uh, whole Chinese army, we saved Korea. Because if we hadn't done that, then there would be no Korea today. They would have just went down and rounded up the rest of the army around Seoul and wiped them out. So having been fought in Korea, the Forgotten War, basically, and it's weird that people forget it because Korea is such an important piece in the world today. How do you think we should handle North Korea? I think we should uh, take them out. They've, they've uh, procrastinated. They're, they've told you your, their intentions. What else do you need? So you think it's beyond time to move? Right. We should if just do this. Pussyfooted around with them, and they're just getting stronger and more bolder, and uh, just hit them so hard that they can't do anything. Do you think uh, if if we killed Kim Jong Un, like the people are decent people, right? No. 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 The farmers are. Those people you see in uniform aren't. They're, so even if you cut the head off, they're still going to fight. Yeah. So it's going to be bloody. Yeah. They're brainwashed. And you got to knock out their systems, their uh, systems that control their artillery that's facing Seoul across the DMZ. This is where MacArthur messed everything up. We're paying the price for his failures in Korea because if he would have done what he said he was going to do, and he said he was going to stop on a line between like Pyongyang and Wonsan, and that's the narrowest part of Korea, 90 miles. And then it opens up like a fan. It, uh, it opens up to 650 miles. But we had enough troops in Korea to handle a 90-mile front, no matter what they threw at us. And then they'd have to come down through the mountains, and we can nail them with our Air, air Force. And our Air Force, uh, the Marines were brilliant. Those guys, uh, I can only speak high praises for, our, for the Marine pilots because they found out we were surrounded up there. They would come in and hold their burst until the very last minute to pull out some dent. But uh, they heard and they kept coming back and coming back. And then the Air Force came in and saved our butt twice. I don't know if you know that. Yeah. We built that field. Our Marine engineers cut out an airstrip at Hagaru, and we, had, we took out 4,500 wounded out of Hagaru. And people don't realize that if we didn't have that airstrip, well, there was no way we could get out of there. Right. Because we would have had to put those 4,500 men on trucks, and we would have had, had to have men protect them. You could only carry like 10 or 12 on oh, a right. truck. Would have taken forever. Yeah, and we didn't have enough men to protect it. We would have had to surrender. And if they would have took, us, uh, took a surrender from us, I don't think they would have. So first two years of your career, you did with the president, then you were in Korea for a little under a year. Did you ever think about re-enlisting? Uh, no. No. <laughs> uh, uh, well, here, <laughs> let's put it a different way, Nick. I did some heroic things in Korea. Uh, and a heroic thing is when you save other people's lives. Sure. And I did that on several occasions. But I never got recognized for it. If they don't see what you do, or everybody else is wounded, you can't put yourself in for medals. And I never thought of that when I was doing it, and I never thought of it afterwards. But in my twilight years, I've thought about the different times, that the different things I did. And if they would have gave me medals for that and promotions, I might have been induced to stay, and I probably would have got killed down in Vietnam. Right. But, uh, you, you, know, you know, for a machine gunner, to last as long as I did without really being really seriously hurt. Lucky, incredibly lucky. Right, and I was in five campaigns and fought in I don't know how many battles. And three of these campaigns got the uh, presidential unit citation. I don't know if people know what that is, but that's equivalent to the Navy Cross for those battles because that's how tough they were. That was Sewell, Chosen Reservoir, and Hill 902 at uh, Chinese Spring Offensive. And we did that in seven months. 
we fought three major battles. In the Second World War, the 1st Marine Division only got three presidential union citations in the whole war. war. And our action was continuous. It right. was unlike anything we did before. We were always fighting. We were always attacking, always finding, you know, going to do. And the Marines never lost a battle in Korea. So it's safe to say you've been around the block at that point. Yeah. So you get so out, I, you come back to Pittsburgh. You're looking to get a job. Let's end with that story. That's a good one. I, uh, I said, well, I think I'd like to work as a security guard because I have some experience. Yeah. I was 21 years old, fought in the Korean War, four years in the Marine Corps, have all these other things going on. And I went and applied for a job at the uh, Westinghouse Atomic Plant, Bettis, as a security guard. They turned me down, and they said, you're not old enough. You have to be 25, and that disheartened me. That told me how bad it's going to be, so don't expect nothing. Go out and get what you can. Right. So I— It's okay to guard the president at 18. Yeah. It's okay to go to war, fight in the worst battles imaginable, but you aren't competent enough to be a security guard. I mean, that's got to chap your ass a little bit, right? And they never fired a shot in their history. Right. <laughs> so that was disheartening. So I, I sucked it up, and uh, I had no love for the VA because they didn't take care of me when I came home. But then they got better, and I'm, I'm taken care of now. But uh, at that time, I tried to get the VA to recognize. And uh, because I was stupid and I didn't keep records, and even though they had records of me being treated for stomach problems in Korea, that didn't mean nothing. They turned me down. And I have, I've had stomach problems all my life. So that's always a thing. It's not a new development that the VA sucks. It sucked forever, right? Right. But real bad back then. Because, you know, it, you hear the same thing. It wasn't painful what I had, but I had esophageal reflux. If it's not painful, and they, they, all the doctors tell you, watch what you eat and takes these pills. Well, you're young. I'm 20 years old, 21 years old. I've just been in the, uh, combat, some of the worst fighting uh, imaginable. And I'm coming home and I'm told I can't enjoy what the other people are enjoying. I can't go out and drink. <laughs> so that's a real kick in the nuts. Yeah, and you can't do that. And you gotta watch what you can't, if you drink two beers, you're gonna throw one up. Or if you drink hard whiskey, you're gonna throw anything over two. If you have any food in you, that's coming out too. And if you eat spicy foods, you're going to throw that up too. So, and nobody told me to keep records. Right. Nobody told me what to do. I didn't, nowadays, they, uh, the Army, well, my son is a retired Air Force officer. They send him for a week of processing and medical checkups oh, yeah. and told him what, the, you know, what he's going to have to do. They didn't do nothing. They couldn't, it was like they couldn't wait till the door hit me in the ass. When I said, I'm getting out, they only wanted people that would stay Yeah, they were done with you at that point. Yeah, right? They got yeah, what they needed. They, that was over then. But That's uh, rough. I'll say this. The Marines are special. There's something about them that if the chips are down, boy, you want the Marines on your side. They could be your worst enemy or your best friend. And I, I believe that. So it's safe to say you don't regret it? No. I, that was the greatest four-year adventure I ever had. I mean, the things I did and it's saw. An interesting and way to, to put it. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was quite an adventure, and it's like I wouldn't have missed it for a world. And it, I think the other part of it is that we weren't known. None of this stuff, like I'm talking to you now, we weren't known for years. I never saw a fellow George Company Marine for 40 years after I left Korea, and I they we didn't go back with George Company. I went back. And uh, they sent me to Norfolk, and I never saw a Marine from Korea or after that until my son called me from Germany and said, Dad, they're having a reunion. George Company's having a reunion in Seattle in 1990, 40 years later after the battle. And uh, I gave him a call, and I didn't even know they had the George Company reunions. So ever since I've been there, and then I met up with Pat O'Donnell, He's a um, historian, and that's another story. I'll take a day to tell you that story. But anyhow, he wrote a book, Give Me Tomorrow, and I gave him the things that I had written 
about Korea, about the different things I ran into, because I kept notes that nobody cared. But I said, I'll just write it down in case my kids want to know. Right. And so when he came on the scene, I handed it to him, and he put it into his book. And the next thing I know after that, I get a call from American Heroes Channel, wanting to do a documentary, and then PBS wanting to do another documentary. And in the last six, seven years, I've been like a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> I get invited to talk at schools and different things like that. So it's been interesting, it's, but it took a long time. And we can't stress how good the PBS documentary is. It's really, really well done. I thought that was done uh, first class. It really explains it. Seeing I was there, it reminded me of a lot of things. Sure. And uh, it shows you how cold it really was and shows you the men taking off their socks and showing you their toes are black from frostbite. And if you, you had, and they tried to make a movie about this, about Chosen. And um, they tried to make it again recently, but this was 25 years ago. The guy that wrote Frozen Chosen, he knew Hollywood. He knew um, a lot of people down there, and he wrote a script for Hollywood. And he, but he told them the only way they can make this movie a Chosen is up in the high Sierras in the middle of winter. And they backed off. They didn't want no parts. Yeah, of I bet not. Because <laughs> at Chosen, everybody's wearing masks. You know, you wear your scarf or something over your face to keep uh, that snow and ice and from hitting you. When it hits you and the wind's blowing, it was like needles going into oh, your yeah. face all over. And you, everybody was windburned. So it, it's you can't it, have John Wayne out there with a thing over his face. No, and you wouldn't know who they are. They right. all look like penguins. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. That's why it's so hard to make a movie about Chosen. Oh yeah. Yet it was the greatest battle. Well, General Dunford at, at a recent thing down in D.C. at Quantico, we dedicated the Chosen Few monument last month, and he says, "You Marines at Chosen set the bar so high." that it'll never be surpassed again. What you did is unbelievable. So. That's gotta make you feel good. 66 years later, we get that kind of recognition. Yeah. yeah. Then it turns out his father was there. Oh, his, no, no. His father was a BAR man with the 5th Marines. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's a small world. Yeah. Small core too. Yeah. And I told him, I have a picture with him, and I told him, I says, if you have trouble with the North Koreans again, <laughs> give us a call. He bust out laughing. You still remember how to shoot that 30 cal, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot different now. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app.